Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you had a wonderful Christmas holiday. And hard to believe that after today we only have three days left of 2020. I certainly hope that 2021 will be um, a better year considering all that the world has um, experienced in 2020, uh, most notably with uh, the coronavirus pandemic. Luckily to know that uh, many of our healthcare workers, um, not only in the United States, but around the, elsewhere around the world, have been able to uh, get uh, the vaccine so far. And I certainly hope that after the new year uh, begins that many other uh, groups of people who are um, deserving of the vaccine are um, entitled to it. But uh, here we are again tonight um, talking about John Oller's The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. Uh, This episode is going to be the uh, last of um, The Swamp Fox. And while it is um, almost 300 pages long, the book is, what I have done in the last couple of episodes is I've uh, condensed uh, material to where uh, we're now, in the last um, few episodes, going into tonight's, uh, that we have uh, condensed material to where um, the knit and grit of uh, the most important information has been revealed, as I had uh, have shared from the last one to two podcasts about major battles. We, there will be another major battle discussed in this episode, and what's important about this particular battle is that it's one that most of us um, probably don't know about. I had no idea about the battle itself until I read the book, but it was a significant battle in how it alters um, fighting, and most notably in South Carolina, but really throughout the South in general, as um, the British will eventually advance northward. Well, they already have done so, but other British forces will advance northward into uh, Yorktown, that uh, famous siege that took place, um, most notably the Battle of Yorktown uh, that um, led to uh, the British surrender, which we'll talk a little bit more about um, down the road in this uh, episode. So let's uh, fasten our seatbelts as we prepare for uh, the final episode of John Oller's The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution. So our first uh, leadoff bonus question uh, for tonight is going to be the following. In the aftermath of being defeated at the Siege of 96, that was uh, the battle where Nathaniel Green was uh, determined to take the... um, the, basically, it was a fort that was a uh, eight-star fort that um, unfortunately did not go to his advantage. Uh, the British seemed to be one step ahead in how they went about fortifying the wall but of the uh, fort itself at 96. But given that um, Nathaniel Green himself was defeated there, how is he going to respond in terms of... Um, uh, we call it in terms of uh, getting his forces to go next. I mean, after all, they can't sit around and feel sorry for themselves. But they've got to um, <clears throat> they've got to venture somewhere else where they can um, launch a, a better uh, coordinated attack. Green will um, in early September of 1781. Nathaniel Green's forces of just over 2,000 will venture to a site known as Utah Springs, which is now Utahville a town in, in Orangeburg County near the Santee River. 
Now, until uh, up until I read the book, uh, John Oller's book, The Swamp Fox, I did not know about Utahville, but I can tell you this much. It's not spelled like the state of Utah, which is spelled U-T-A-H. Utahville is spelled the following, E-U-T-A-W-V-I-L-L-E. Now, many of you are wondering, okay, why is Utah Springs so significant? I'll give you one answer here. It would become the site of, of, be, of being the bloodiest battle throughout the American Revolution. Now, up until I read this book, I always thought that Bunker Hill in Massachusetts in 1775 would, was the bloodiest uh, battle, given that the um, Continental Army had killed a quarter of the British Army, but yet lost that battle because of uh, running out of ammunition. But it turns out that in South Carolina, there have been so many battles, even uh, more what you call the smaller skirmish battles that have not gotten as much recognition as the major ones like uh, Cowpens especially or Camden. But Utah Springs would become the site of the bloodiest battle throughout the, the Revolutionary War. So uh, besides Nathaniel Green leading the way at Utah Springs, what other patriot uh, leaders will join him. They range from the following. Light Horse Harry Lee, who will have about 150 to 200 militiamen from North Carolina. Andrew Pickens, who will be in charge of about 300 South Carolina militia. Colonel William Henderson, who will be in charge of 150 to 200 South Carolina state troops. To Nathaniel Green, who has about nearly 200, about 1,250 Continental Army men. And then Francis Marion, who has roughly about 240 militiamen. So the bottom line is that everybody that I just mentioned a moment ago in terms of leaders, including Nathaniel Green, have a very, very um, solid uh, force of men um, who will all come together to defend Utah Springs against the British. Here's our next bonus question right here. Had Lieutenant General Charles Cornwallis already left South Carolina for good before September of 1781? Uh, yes. Uh, he never came back to South Carolina after the battle at Guilford Courthouse. And as a result of that, he uh, moved northward uh, to Virginia and what we now know as uh, Yorktown around the historic Triangle area, not far from Williamsburg. Now, as for the British, uh, who's going to take command on their side at Utah Springs? Given especially that Nathaniel Green, not Nathaniel Green, pardon me, that um, Lieutenant General Charles Cornwallis is no, no longer in South Carolina. The answer is Major General Alexander Stewart, whom has a force of roughly 2,000 men. Now, on the morning of September 8, 1781, both sides engage in what you call intelligence-gathering um, scenarios or strategies where, on the American side, um, a, hand, a couple of men actually make their way into the British camp stating basically that, hey, Nathaniel Green and his men are going to be launching a surprise attack on you all. Well, 
Major General Alexander Stewart was really caught off guard by this, so he didn't take any chances, so he basically captured those men. These American men were not deserters, but this was a way of trying to test the waters to see just how strong or let alone weak the British were in knowing not just where they were territorial-wise, but where the enemy, being the Americans, were. And, of course, the British did the same thing, too, all of this being in short distance. But there again, it's all about, you know, looking for those weak spots, regardless of what side you're on. So by, by about 9 a.m., the battle would uh, itself would begin to take place. You know, given how successful um, Nathaniel Green, along with um, Daniel Morgan... Um, instituted strategy-wise at Calpens back at the start of 1781 in uh, January, uh, and that was um, one of the mo more, uh, what do you call it, unique battles where Daniel Morgan did a double envelopment where he um, launched um, an attack on the British right and left flanks, which was totally unheard of. But did Green himself use strategies similar to Calpens with the militia and the state troops up front with Continentals in a line behind them, as well as cavalry flanks in reserve. As well as cavalry on flanks and, and, and in reserve. Uh, the answer is yes. At Utah Springs, Nathaniel Green would go about setting soldiers up in lines running north to south, facing British to the east, so in other words, he didn't have everybody lined up, but he had them in different um, rows. And I'll tell you that here in a second. The first American line would be comprised of militia from North and South Carolina. Um, the second American line would be your Continental Infantry from Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina. As for the third line, it would be Continental Cavalrymen under William Washington, who was George Washington's cousin. And... Uh, a Delaware Continental uh, Regiment force under Captain Robert Kirkwood. So Nathaniel Green is really um, taking advantage of how he's going to line up his uh, men. It, he's smart enough not to put them all together as one. Otherwise, you could get mowed down. You could flee in panic. That's really not the right way to go about uh, conducting a strat, uh, conducting proper warfare, especially in, in the Carolinas. But yes, he has um, used strat. He is using strategies similar to Calpin's. Now, as for the British Major General Alexander Stewart, his forces were comprised of British redcoats and loyalist provincials. But how ironically that no Hessians were present. They were, you know, remember the German um, mercenaries who were fighting. Um, under the, um, under the tutelage of the British. Now, as for the British, they have more artillery power, but Nathaniel Green had more mounted soldiers, which served as an asset to cutting off retreats. Mounted soldiers, cavalry. So, yes, you can have all the artillery power you, wa you want, but if you don't have any cavalry on you, that could really put you at a great disadvantage. So our next bonus question here is the following. 
Did the American militia going into Utah Springs have mixed have a have an overall mixed record against the British? Yes. Is this mixed record uh, good and bad? Uh, yes. Given early on in the Southern Campaign in 1780, American militia forces ran scared when British troops with bayonets came charging at Camden, and that, was, of course, was a huge debacle, but we have Horatio Gates to thank for messing that up big time. But at Cowpens, all of that changes under Daniel Morgan when the militia can go about firing two to three shots before pulling back. And that obviously that strategy worked because the British thought right away, well, under uh, Bannistray Tarleton, that, okay, they're surrendering now, let's go after them. But the further they went into the woods, what do you know? There was a greater force of um, continental um, regiments who basically slaughtered the British. It should be interesting to note that one-third of Green's force at Utah Springs will be comprised of militiamen. So one-third, folks, that's about 33%. Here's another bonus question to think about. How many militiamen did Francis Marion command given they were the first to march forward? 700. That's a lot of militiamen for Francis Marion to cover, but he's no stranger to this stuff. After all, he's been the one that's kept the flame for uh, independence alive, not just in South Carolina, but let alone for the war effort itself for the Patriots. Now, it turns out that Marion's forces fired the first shots and were successful to where roughly each man fired close to about 17 shots. So that's a huge step in the right direction, given at Calpens, yes, there was success, but I would say at Calpens, that was 101 for the militia. You fire two to three shots, then you retreat back, and then a next group of men, you know, comes out and fires. Whereas here at Utah Springs, you've got now each man who is now stepping up to the plate in a greater level and can fire more shots. Did some Patriot militia withdraw after a few rounds of firing? Yes. But luckily, Continental forces from North Carolina took charge to keep Marion's left flank intact. So yes, it is fair to say that some Patriot militiamen withdrew after firing a few rounds because it could be fair to say that some of them had not had enough experience up until now to where they just didn't feel comfortable. Is that a good thing? On one hand, maybe not, but thank heavens that... Um, the, this uh, North Carolina Continental Force was able to um, keep Marion's left flank intact because if it weren't for them, their left flank would have been exposed and might have been taken out. Marion's forces did become vulnerable to British attacks with bayonets, especially British attacks with bayonets, but would receive protection from Nathaniel Green's second line of Maryland and Virginia Continental Forces whom fired volleys along with performing bayonet charges. And w when you get a volley, that's where you get a number of men within the same line who are firing long range so that, um, so that if um, one bullet doesn't get someone, that some other men's um, shots might get uh, men from the opposite uh, side. 
So a volley usually, if it's a rifle, you can get about maybe 75 to 100 yards, uh, which is going to be far deadlier than um, a musket, which can fire maybe about 50 to 60 yards. Of course, the big difference, as I've always learned at Colonial Williamsburg, is that a musket, you can reload faster, whereas with a rifle, it's going to take longer. But either way, you could still get success if you're firing in a volley. Now, what's unique about this um, bayonet charge that the uh, Maryland and Virginia Continental Forces mounted was that it drove the uh, most notably the 63rd and 64th elite British regiments back, which was a very, very rare moment in, or let alone incident throughout the war because this was probably the first time where these particular elite British regiments had been driven back by a bayonet charge. More often than not, the British were the ones doing the bayonet charges. Uh, the Americans did perform them. But usually when I think of bayonet charges, I tend to think of the British being the ones um, doing that kind of stuff. With the British on the run, only one of their units maintained uh, ground, being Major John Marjorabanks, but the actual pronunciation is Marshbanks, Light Infantry and Grenadiers. Now, you, we all know what the light infantry were. Those who um, were more agile, they didn't carry as much equipment on them, whereas the grenadiers were your uh, soldiers who carried um, heavy-duty equipment. Major Marshbanks forces were successful enough on the British end to, dr to drive or let alone repel back William Washington and Wade Hampton's troops where losses started to mount. Luckily, for, um, for the Delaware Continentals led by Robert Kirkwood, they were able to come through and drive back Major Marshbanks' soldiers. And by doing so, the British Army appeared to be in chaos. Here's another bonus question right here. Despite the Patriot forces driving the British troops back, would British forces muster up a surprise response attack? This sounds crazy, but I'm sure many of y'all are thinking, how in the world could the British even muster up a surprise attack when they've been driven back? Well, the answer is yes. How does this happen? Well, it turns out that American troops are very uh, desperate now for energy purposes so that they start consuming rum. Well, remember, folks, you know, water is not very safe to drink, but rum does provide a source of energy to um, soldiers or let alone people in general. But here's the ironic thing. The, Brit the Americans are celebrating. They think they've already, that the British are so dejected that they're not going to even come back out and fight. Well, it turns out that Major General Alexander Stewart, along with Major General Major John Marshbanks, their units take up positions in which heavy firing was placed upon Patriots, most notably their left and right flanks, which pretty much stuns them. However, Wade Hampton on the, on the Patriot side helps modify the situation with, by forcing the British into another retreat. If it hadn't been for Wade Hampton, um, we could have been... Uh, decimated furthermore. 
And there is a place in uh, South Carolina known as Hampton, South Carolina, and I think it's fair to say that it would be named after Wade Hampton. Now, as for fighting on September 8th of 1781, the fighting itself lasted a total of four hours, and casualties on both sides were very, very high. I want to say on the American side, uh, the casualties were probably maybe at least somewhere 600, as on the British side, you're looking somewhere over 800. But the number of... Um, ranking officers who were either um, killed or wounded on the American side were about 60. As for British officers killed, wounded, or missing, you have about 29. Francis Marion, believe it or not, lost two officers, including 26 men wounded. You know, these numbers don't sound like a whole lot, but at the end of the day, they did tally up, a lo tally up um, very high. Given that this battle would be the bloodiest in, throughout the American Revolution, the Battle of Utah Springs would be the last major conflict of the Revolutionary War in the Carolinas. The British were basically unable to halt Nathaniel Greene's operations, which led to their abandoning, the, which led to their abandoning previously held posts. You know, Nathaniel Greene, his objective basically was to keep the British on the run to the point where they would um, be forced to abandon their original strategical command posts like Charleston. And that's what happened at Guilford Courthouse. The British may have, the British did win the battle, but they kept pursuing Nathaniel Greene's forces to the point where um, Cornwallis's troops were drained. They had nowhere else to go. So basically, he, their retreat, instead of going back to Charleston, South Carolina, they went to Wilmington, North Carolina instead, and then went northward to Yorktown. So it's one thing to chase the enemy, but you better be careful how far you pursue your chase, because if you don't have any what you call proper limits or boundaries on how far the chase itself goes, your uh, forces... Or become not only just burnt physically, but emotionally. Well, in the aftermath of Utah Springs Battle, it's a good bonus question to think about. What did Governor John Rutledge propose to all Tories? Remember, folks, the Tories are those loyal to the crown, or let alone just sympathetic. Governor John Rutledge issues a pardon on the condition that if Tories agree to the pardon, that they are to serve six months in the Patriot Militia. And those who refused faced banishment, not just from South Carolina, but along with having their properties confiscated. So, in other words, we don't wish the Tories harm, but we also need to make sure that they uh, change their loyalty status from that of Tory to Whig. Because if they choose not to, then how can they be considered trustworthy citizens, not just of South Carolina, but that of the United States? Governor Rutledge had Francis Marion carry out the amnesty order. And an amnesty, if those of you don't know what that means, that's a mass pardon. This amnesty order will require those seeking pardons to appear before a brigadier general of uh, South Carolina within 30 days to swear their allegiance oath to accepting terms of militia uh, service. 
So in other words, allegiance oath meaning that you take up arms with, um, with the uh, United States. Along, and by doing so, you are swearing your allegiance to um, not just the United States, but to your, um, but you are forsaking all other allegiances with other countries, most notably England. You know, we're not at a point now where people are entitled to dual citizenship, or let alone could even require acquire dual citizenship. Now, on October nineteenth of seventeen eighty one. The British, under General Lord Charles Cornwallis, surrender at Yorktown, but the war itself is not officially over. That's what we forget. We think, oh, the British surrender at Yorktown, everything's all hunky-dory great. We go back to living our life, or back to living our lives prior to uh, war breaking out in 1775. I hate to tell you people, but that's not how it worked. As for November 14, 1781, what's unique about that date is that the British forces evacuate Wilmington, North Carolina, which would be the last stronghold in North Carolina for the British. In November of 1781, the South Carolina capital, which had been Charleston, relocates to Jacksonboro, which is about 36 miles west. It was seen as a measure to protect the government from falling into the hands of loyalist sympathizers. And even by this time, Governor Rutledge has forbidden loyalists to even vote. He's very skeptical about loyalists voting because, for one, it's one thing to let them vote, but are they really showing their true loyalty to their own country, being the United States? So, you know, Governor Rutledge has, has his own people to think about, but he's also got to make sure that they are um, proper, worthy citizens, not just of South Carolina, but that of the United States. Now, I should uh, point out that um, Francis Marion, even after the American Revolution, he actually served in the South Carolina legislature. He also went as far as... Um, Come 1787, he even served as a um, delegate, not to the Constitutional Convention, but as a delegate um, to his uh, state's convention in uh, selecting uh, the delegates that would go to uh, Philadelphia to sign the Constitution, and one of them just so happened to be a Rutledge. Well, uh, if you are a Rutledge in South Carolina, then you are very, very um, high society, um, along with the Draytons, along with um, other families, um, most notably, um, oh, I'm trying to think here, what other uh, families um, are there? Um, Middleton, that's the other uh, another prominent family in South Carolina. Arthur Middleton, who uh, was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, uh, along with the Haywards, um, Lawrence, um, there those are just some a handful of uh, prominent um, South Carolinian uh, families. But Francis Marion was very active in South Carolina politics after the American Revolution uh, comes to an end, and that's probably a good thing because he. Um, you know, there's no need to sit um, sit down and, you know, do nothing. You've got to find a way to stay active because even though, yes, uh, the Treaty of Paris in 1783 officially ends the American Revolution, 
there's still so much work left to be done. And of course, we come to realize that the Articles of Confederation um, is such a fledgling governmental institution that Congress itself can't even get anything done without the request of the states. We've come to realize that that, that itself doesn't even work. So, But back to um, the end of uh, John Oller's The Swamp Fox. You know, Francis Marion was often referred to as the Washington of the South. As for Nathaniel Green, he was referred to as the Savior of the South. Well, I think it's fair to say that uh, had Washington, had Congress not given Washington the right to select the commander he wanted all along to be the lead commander of the um, Southern Continental Army, being none other than Nathaniel Green, if Green had not become the commander, I think it's fair to say that um, that maybe the so- there would have been no Southern Continental Army that would have been able to have driven uh, Lord Charles Cornwallis out of South Carolina once and for all, or let alone uh, have been able to have defeated Banistre Tarleton at um, Calpens, uh, thanks to Daniel Morgan's uh, leadership uh, there. So what we must remember, folks, is that the Southern uh, campaign wasn't all um, achieved by one man, but it was achieved by a multitude of men who were at the right place at the right time, who um, made a difference when it mattered most. These men, most notably Nathaniel Green, Francis Marion, Thomas Sumter, Andrew Pickens to Daniel Morgan, they all found ways to restore morale to the um, cause, not only for independence, but restore morale for men in the South who were desperate for a fight, who wanted to let the British know that, hey, you all may have gotten the upper hand after, the, after our debacles from Camden and Fishing Creek, but we're here to let you know that we can fight you guys. It's going to be a different style of warfare. And what do you know, from 1780 to 1782, Francis Marion was the beacon whose light never got fully extinguished because he always seemed to be one step ahead without smarting the British, in large part due to his creativity behind irregular-style warfighting, or let alone, I should say, guerrilla warfare. And yes, despite Bannister, Bannister Tarleton's best efforts, and he probably was the best British figure who, could, who had what it took to perhaps uh, capture Francis Marion, even Tarleton admitted, in quotations, the devil himself could not catch him. In other words, the devil himself could not catch Francis Marion, no matter how far into the woods Marion went. The devil could not catch the fox. The fox was so elusive. Just when you had him, he was already one to two steps ahead of you. Well, what do you know? Marion was that swamp fox. He didn't spend all of his time hiding in the swamp, but he knew how far he could go to where the enemy was not willing to go. The further Marion goes into the woods, the further he can uh, regroup, the further he can, he can come up with new strategies for his men to attack the enemy. And while, yes, guerrilla warfare may seem small, 
It may not be visible. If you shoot down three or five of the enemy's soldiers, over time those losses mount up because it's not like you could just call up and say, hey, I need about 50 to 100 more men to come out and fight. No, the, once those um, supply lines get decimated, the harder it becomes to recruit those into the enemy camp who are willing to fight. And once uh, once all these small skirmishes take place and you um, force the enemy on the run, you can get them out of the, their comfort zone to where once they're in full mode retreat, the harder it is for them to get back to where they um, originally may have established their post, like we saw with Cornwallis at uh, Guilford Courthouse, where he was driven so far up north to where he could not, he no longer decided that South Carolina was hospitable enough for um, establishing a post. Well, Without, as I said earlier, without men like Nathaniel Green, Francis Marion, Thomas Sumter, Andrew Pickens to Daniel Morgan, the southern states would have surrendered to where British control over her subjects, a.k.a. the 13 colonies, would have reigned supreme and perhaps the United States' fate as well. So we're not just talking about one southern state. We're talking about a different kind of strategy that had to be put in place to where the British would be caught off guard. And because they were caught off guard, they were forced to stay in South Carolina longer than Charles Cornwallis ever envisioned. Even in the movie The Patriot, he was quoted as saying to the man portraying Bannister, Bannister Tarleton, let alone his name was Colonel Tavington, the man playing Cornwallis said the following, I should be attending balls in North Carolina and Virginia, but I'm here in South Carolina. You're the one that's created this ghost. Here he is on the run, or on the move, beating us left and right. Of course, I can't remember if that's what's said, but the bottom line is Cornwallis is not happy at the fact that he is still in South Carolina when he should already be up in North Carolina. In other words, the British have now realized that they are fighting an enemy that has reinvented itself. They are fighting an enemy who somehow knows the terrain better than they do, but by doing so without always having to rely on open warfare style fighting, which is what Horatio Gates did at Camden that was such a bad debacle. You know, open warfare fighting, there's nothing wrong with it, but you can't rely on it where everywhere you go. Um, in other words, open warfare fighting say at Saratoga, or let alone um, in Brandywine, is not the same as fighting in South Carolina. It's a whole different terrain, and that's what Horatio Gates failed to realize. But thank heavens, Francis Marion and Nathaniel Green, Daniel Morgan, Sumter, Andrew Pickens, they all knew how to fight. And they all seemed to rely on each other Yes, they may have had their differences, but they all knew how to work together when it mattered most. And as I said early on in this series, Horatio Gates sent, Nathaniel, uh, sent um, Francis Marion and his 20, um, 20 so-called group of um, militiamen, um, ragtag warriors, 
who were frowned upon by the Continentals thanks to Horatio Gates's ignorance. Gates did Marion and those men a big favor by sending them to um, Williamsburg Township, or let alone around the Witherspoon Ferry area. They were spared from being um, slaughtered at Camden. They were the real heroes. They were the ones that saved um, the cause for independence. While Horatio Gates left in, um, by horseback in disgrace, Francis Marion and these 20 men were, were um, resurrecting the um, cause for independence by recruiting militiamen. And by doing so, a foundation had been laid not just for the present, but for the next couple of years. I think it's fair to point out that oftentimes we do forget that uh, so many towns and cities are named after famous people. I can tell you right now, in uh, Virginia, there is a county called Green County. And it's not the color green, it's G-R-E-E-N-E. It's named after Nathaniel Green. Greenville, South Carolina. Greenville, North Carolina, Greensboro, North Carolina, Greenville, Tennessee. There's a county in uh, New York State around the Catskill area called Green County, named after Nathaniel Green. Greenville, Ohio, outside of Dayton. So we must remember, folks, that no matter where we go, and we hear names like that, like Greenville, Tennessee, or Ohio, or South Carolina, who should we think of? Nathaniel Green. As for Francis Marion, believe it or not, folks, if there, if there was another commander who has as many uh, cities and state cities and towns named after him, second to George Washington, it is Francis Marion. Nearly 30 cities or towns are named in his honor. There is a town in Virginia, in southwest Virginia, not far uh, from Blacksburg and uh, the Radford and uh, Withville area known as Marion, Virginia, named in honor of Francis Marion. Marion, North Carolina, which is not far from Asheville. Of course, you've got Marion, South Carolina. You have Marion, Ohio. Marion, Indiana. Marion, Illinois. And when I think of Marion, Illinois, there's a fam there's a... Uh, a well-to-do, uh, well-known federal penitentiary there that has ho that has housed um, some famous criminals, most notably the late John Gotti from that famous Gotti crime family in New York. So, the further west we go, folks, remember this: in Virginia, the counties west of the fall line are usually named after your uh, military uh, leaders. There's a county in um, southwest Virginia called Washington County, named after George Washington. Think of Marion, think of Francis Marion. So the further west we go, like even, even when Virginia was the largest of the 13 states, her territory stretched as far west as present-day Ohio. Well, what do you know? There are places in Ohio named after Revolutionary War figures, like Francis Marion, Nathaniel Green, there's even a place in Ohio called uh, Jefferson, um, I think it's uh, Jeffersonville, but it's named after Thomas Jefferson. So so let's just remember, no matter where we go and travel and we um, come across those places, we have uh, our Revolutionary War 
uh, figures to think. There is a place in South Carolina called Pickens, South Carolina, in the northwestern part of the state named after Andrew Pickens. Sumter, South Carolina, Fort Sumter. Matter of fact, Thomas Sumter, I should point out, yes, he was known as the Fighting Gamecock for his fierce fighting. He lived to be 97 years old, which was very, very unheard of in his day and time. He was born in 1734 and died in 1832. As for um, Francis Marion, he was born in 1732, uh, the same year that uh, George Washington was born. He dies in 1795 at the age of 63, which was considered to be old age for his time. Nathaniel Green, on the other hand, died five years after the surrender at Yorktown. Sadly, he did not make it to the age of uh, 50. He was only about 44 years old. But even by 1786 standards, to have lived to have been 44, that was a long life when you consider that you know life expectancy wasn't high. But all of these men, um, it wasn't just about one person alone, but Francis Marion did lay the groundwork in order to go about keeping the revolution alive, but by doing so with reinventing how warfare needed to be fought at a time when morale was low. But the best thing he did was, not, was to have not told his men the debacles at Camden and at Fishing Creek. Had he done so... Desertions would have taken place left and right to where there might not have even been an army that could have um, launched an attack or a guerrilla-style attack shortly after the debacle, which was sorely needed because without that, without those surprise attacks, how can any kind of morale be restored? Well, this has been a great series, folks. I've really enjoyed uh, sharing with you all about uh, the Swamp Fox and I strongly recommend going on to YouTube. Uh, you can learn more about Francis Marion. There have also been uh, ba uh, battles that I've learned more about recently on YouTube, uh, most notably the Siege at 96, uh, the Battle at Calpens, uh, Kings Mountain, North Carolina, uh, to Guilford Courthouse. There's even one on Camden. Uh, but all of this is very uh, instrumental to get a better uh, understanding of why the war in the South was fought the way it was, why the British chose to come South, but also how the British strategy failed in large part because they did not realize just how resilient the backcountry people were in fighting not just Tories from within their own state, but also going up against the king's army. Well, thank you uh, for letting me uh, share this uh, great, uh, unique um, book on uh, Francis Marion. And we must always remember what our, what our forefathers uh, sacrificed, not just by signing the Declaration of Independence, but by fighting but th those men who fought um, the American Revolution. Um, because they were the ones that put their lives on the line so that future generations could live in freedom. The freedoms that we have today, we can thank, we can thank um, those who had fought from not just wars past, but most notably from the American Revolution. Remember, folks, freedom isn't free. And always remember this, there were two people in this world who died on a cross to protect not only our freedom, but who died on the, on the cross 
so that we could live a better life. Jesus Christ and the American soldier. Remember that, folks. Those two people are the ones who died on a cross, who died on the cross so that we could have a better life. Thank those people and also thank Jesus as well. Well, thank you for um, listening, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon with another um, podcast series on a different topic. And um, thank you again to all of you who have listened who have listened to my podcasts. And if you know of people out there who would like to listen, tell them to um, come listen uh, because they will get their money's worth. And what's great about Anchor is that it's free, and the opportunities are limitless. So. Thank you again, and uh, have. And if I'm if I'm not back on the air before New Year's Eve, I hope you all have a great start to your new year. Take care.